Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. From the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This past week I began reading an edition of the sermons of John Henry Newman, the rather famous Oxford Movement priest and scholar. The English Church of Newman's day, which was you know, around about the 1830s, 1840s, and evangelicalism in the Church of England, in general as a movement, had become typified by the belief that to be saved was to be one who merely looked to Jesus for salvation more with the feeling than with the will. Conversion had become a largely subjective experience with true Christians being understood to be those who had experienced a dramatic event leading to a newly formed faith. Newman had benefited from this, of course, but he also saw the difficulties, that this kind of doctrine could imply that no further moral or spiritual development in the Christian is needed. And what you're left with is a kind of antinomianism, a kind of being against any legal requirements whatsoever. In a desire, a good desire, to be free of the eagles of legalism, many in every age have adopted a kind of lawlessness, what St. Paul would call licentiousness, and in fact he does in the reading from this morning, licentiousness, a moral license which is at odds with the revealed gospel. Today there are many who recognize that American Christianity has become typified by a bare moralism. The belief that God wants me to be a good person and being a good person so that I can go to heaven when I die. Well, that, friends, is not the gospel. But it is often traded for an equally problematic position, that of a constant attempt to stir up the feelings, to seek out excitement and zeal as the true ends of Christian believing. The truth is that justifying faith has no existence apart from definite acts. As James James writes, faith without works is dead. The scriptures are replete with examples of this. The initiative of God in setting apart a people for himself, set apart for good works, not capable in themselves, but set afire by the work of the Holy Spirit, filled with the grace of the sacraments, and continually asking what the Lord's will for them is, that they may be obedient to it. Here again what Paul says, put off your old nature which belongs to your former life and is corrupt through deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In the gospel reading today, those fed miraculously in the feeding of the 5,000 go to Capernaum and they fi- to find Jesus. And one of the questions they ask is a simple one and to the point that I've been making. Remember what they ask. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? Um, This often happens in in churches. It happens in all kinds of organizations. What do we have to do to be getting it really, really right? They're essentially asking, what law must they observe? What laws must they observe? What moral imperative? What heroic duty? 
They have been fed by the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, and they see that God is at work in Jesus, and they simply want to know what is the sign that God is at work in us too. And Jesus answers them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Listen to that again. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus calls them first to believe, to be a people of faith, not in the generic God of the gaps, but in his incarnate person, standing before them, speaking to them. It becomes clear in the rest of the text today that what is being presented to them is a sacramental encounter with the incarnate Jesus who is the true bread from heaven, conquering all their hunger, assuaging all their thirst. They are thinking, and rightly so, of manna in the wilderness. You know, no one can read those accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 without, you shouldn't, without thinking about manna in the wilderness. The people are hungry and God feeds them. That's the story. But they're wanting something more than that, an improvement on the dispensations of a bygone era. They want not just bread in the desert, they want God himself. And rightly so, yes? And they have him in Jesus. And that is the first thing that needs to be said today, that justifying faith is not simply to believe in a generic God who offers a generic heaven to those who trust in him. No, salvation in the New Testament is always founded upon faith in the incarnate Jesus and not merely living faith, but the sacramental solidification of that faith in the waters of baptism, which means being crucified with Christ, being bodily identified with him in his death and resurrection. As Paul writes of his own baptism, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This means that the Christian lives with a new identity, a new nature, the identity of Jesus and the identity of Jesus being taken into our nature to redeem it by grace. And it is this that Paul fleshes out in the reading from Ephesians today. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created after the likeness of God. Who is this referring to? But Jesus For Paul, the various offices in the church, which he describes in the previous section, are given and empowered by the gift of Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And the reason is given. It's so that Christians may be mature, living up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, no longer children. And what do children do? They're impulsive. They do whatever they want. Being mature means you no longer live by impulse, but you live in obedience. And Paul writes, so that they may no longer be won over by spurious doctrine and cunning speech. I should say, today's pagan has no use for this kind of maturity. 
One of the tenets of postmodernity is that there's no such thing as teleology. Human beings have no inherent purpose, no real measure of rightly ordered goods of anything, let alone a human person. At the very least, those goods are deeply contested, and what is, and what is asked regularly is this. What is, you know, we should ask this regularly. What is the true end of human life? How can we even know that? Well, Paul offers an answer, and he offers the answer because it is uniquely and definitively answered in Jesus Christ. And the answer to the futility of our minds, the answer to our darkened understanding, the answer to our uh, impetuousness, the answer to our alienation from the life of God, the answer to ignorance, the ignorance in which we humans dwell, is Jesus himself. Paul, therefore, writes to the Ephesians concerning this deep ignorance, you did not so learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. He doesn't say as the truth is in the Bible. He doesn't say as the truth is in good, solid theology. He says as the truth is in Jesus. The truth regarding the end of human life is found in Jesus himself and nowhere else. This is Jesus' answer to his questioners. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The problem today is that all too often, knowledge of Jesus is being replaced by a knowledge of one's own salvation gained by a distinct feeling about Jesus. And that is not the doctrine of the New Testament. The distinction, if I can be allowed to oversimplify it a bit, is that the New Testament presupposes that each and every Christian is engaged in an ongoing, continuous meeting of Christ in the Eucharist. That's why the New Testament lays out, in places like John chapter 6, these extended discourses on the Eucharist. The New Testament proposes that each Christian is fed by the person of Jesus, all thirst assuaged by the outpouring of his blood. For recent centuries, communion became so infrequent, not only among Protestants, but among Roman Catholics too, that in a very deep way, our thinking became inherently suspicious of sacramentality, suspicious of believing that Jesus himself could be encountered through material forms. And as a friend of mine says, <laughs> friends, matter matters. <laughs> But this is the scandal of the particularity of the Incarnation, is it not? It is the unique teaching of Christ's church, not just Christ's church here, but Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that Jesus gives himself to our participation in him, in his body and blood through the sacrament. This is the teaching of the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In this sacrament, our faith is strengthened, our feeble works given the grace to be good and divinely ordered. Why? Because Christ is made manifest in the breaking of bread. Just as the Israelites in the wilderness knew themselves to be objects of God's salvation through the outpouring of manna, we know ourselves to be objects of God's salvation, recipients of a new nature through Jesus giving himself to us in the Eucharist. The scholar Peter Lightheart, and I've quoted him before in this way, was once asked what he thought is the greatest cultural challenge facing American evangelicals. He did not hesitate. 
saying that the problem is not out there in the culture, but inherent to American Christians today. And he says this, the persistent marginalization of the Eucharist in evangelical church life, piety, and political engagement. Today what we seek is not the consolation of good and pious feelings or freedom from moral command. No, we seek, and I hope you came here seeking this this morning, we seek to become partakers of the divine nature. We seek to meet Jesus here. And in meeting him to be changed, changed into the likeness of his glory, to put on him who is righteousness and holiness himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.